is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello and congratulations. Yes. We're at a milestone. I mean, we are at a milestone. 250 episodes. Look at us. I mean, it feels like 700. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's quite a thing, isn't it? Five, nearly five years, yeah? Yeah, so we'll, we'll probably go a bit bigger on the five years rather than on yeah. the nice round number of yeah. 250. Well, a 250 not out is quite good. Never missed a week? Some cheaty ones. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. But, but we can still say in good faith that we've never <laughs> yeah. missed a week. Yeah. And I was thinking how we could mark this. A cake? I didn't think to bake a cake, did you? Yeah. Mm. I baked some aubergine, actually, but I don't think that quite counts. <laughs> And a highlight for me in recent times was when we did that Boston Red Sox quiz. Yes. So I thought, why don't we have another quiz? Yeah. And I could ask you 10 questions about the 250 episodes. Yep. Okay. Can I just say in advance, I've had no notice of this and I'm confident I'll get zero out of 10. But I admire your sort of inventiveness and joie de vivre. So I'm going to be game for a laugh. (laughs) Thank God you're in a good mood today. What should we call this quiz? I don't know, 250 to 1? Yeah. Ed Heads? Either. Bull's Ed? Ed Busters? Ed Busters. Okay. 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 Ready? Give me a B, please, Bob. Uh, your 10 questions start now. Question one. In episode 12, what did you go to see your son Sam perform? This was in December of 2017. Pass. He was in The Tempest as the narrator. Okay. Question two, episode 214. A hotel receptionist in Harrogate presented you with what hilarious gift? (laughs) Uh, Give me a clue. It was early in the morning. A bacon sandwich. Yes! Question three in episode 23, which was about buses. Which London bus route did you name as your favourite? 74. Ah, 214. Oh, yeah. I thought it might be in a childhood one because I used to hit 74 as a child. Mm. You're not saying you weren't being quite honest with us about your favourite bus. No, I'm time. not. I'm not. <laughs> You're not going to have to resign. It's not a West Ham Aston Villa situation. Uh, <laughs> All right. Okay. Question four from 124. Even though your reason to be cheerful that week was the return of the kids' TV show Crackerjack, you were unhappy about it. Why? Because it wasn't at five to five. Yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Pulled it out of the bag. Question five. In episode 208, you disrobed with three young people. Where were you and why did you do that? What? Disrobed with three young people? Mm Mm-hmm. Hampstead Ponds? No, you went swimming in the North Sea with three students in St Andrews. Oh, I did. That is true. Okay, I've got a memory like a sieve. Keep going. Question six in... This is such a good quiz. Honestly, this is miles better than the Boston Red Sox quiz. Well, you've already done miles better than that, which is your self-professed, especially subject. Um, Question six in episode 195. A policeman you met in Doncaster compared you losing the 2015 election to what? (laughs) A policeman in Doncaster compared it to... Doncaster Rovers being relegated. Being dumped by a girlfriend. Uh, yeah, I remember that now. I said there were plenty more electorates in the sea. Yeah, but that wasn't true. Right. 
Question seven, episode yeah. 140. You yeah. created a fake Guardian article. Yes, Tooth Fairy. To try and prove the existence of the Tooth Fairy uh, to your yeah. sons. Yeah. Who were, who were the journalists who supposedly wrote that oh, article? Gosh. Do I get half a point for yes. like half an yes. answer? Yes. Something cavity mm. and something molar or something. I can't. I don't think I can give you that. It was Terry McCavity and Bob Filling. I mean, it's quite inventive. It's, it's inventive. I think I get a quarter of an answer for okay, I'll give you a quarter cavity. For that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Question eight, episode sixty-five. Uh, you you brought a quote to the episode that you were keen to share with me and the listeners, and it was it's just after the again. Paris riots. And the the quote that you brought along was: "The true question is whether the disobedience can be productive. What comes the day after?" Can the progressives use the energy? So instead of violence, we have images of constructing equal and egalitarian societies. Paris riots? Yeah. What was the Paris? I can't remember. I think it was the Yellow Jackets. Oh, the Yellow, yellow Vest. Yellow Vest, yes. Yellow Jackets is that TV show, isn't it? Who was the quote? I have no idea. Pamela Anderson. What? I, I was, as, I was as, sur- as surprised as you clearly are. Yeah. Question nine from episode 101, which was a live show. I had talked to your sons backstage, who were eight and nine at the time, and I asked, they, they were kind of trying to persuade me to get you to let them stay up after eight o'clock. I said, what would you do if yes. you stayed up after eight o'clock? What was their answer? Watch a documentary. Watch a documentary is the right answer, yes. And uh, and finally, two weeks ago in episode 248... I should get this one. You were at the Progressive Economy Conference. A young man came up to you to ask about your aubergine recipe. Yeah. What was his name? I think his surname was Stafford. That wasn't mentioned. Alex was his first name. Yes! That is amazing. I'm genuinely bowled over by that. You've managed four and a quarter points out of a possible ten. That is a definite... I'm on the upswing. Very impressive. The trend is my friend. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That is a good quiz. Congratulations. Well done, Jeff. This is why I'm so happy to be in collaboration with you. Very few people could have... Would have have remembered all that stuff. Yeah. Because I wrote that quiz from memory. It's been a wild ride. It has been a wild ride and it will continue to be so. Do you think we're going to do another 250? I feel that if we ever stopped, we'd have to stop at some kind of milestone. So 500 maybe feels right or 1,000. I had a lot of nice people in Glastonbury saying nice things about the podcast, by the way. Oh, tell me about Glastonbury. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah? Honestly, I am a total music festival convert. I basically realised that I'm going to have to live my 20s in my 50s because I didn't live my 20s in my (laughs) 20s. That's the top line conclusion. So what did you get up to? What did you see? We saw Sam Fender. And how, how was Sam Fender? Were you singing along? Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. You were quite worried about what to do with your arms at a gig. You said you felt feel very self-conscious. I didn't know what... Yeah, I didn't know. I, that was. But I gave you some good advice, I thought. Only one arm? Well, that was Rachel's advice, yeah. only to yeah. never use both arms, just one. My, my advice was to kind of either fold your arms or put your hands in your pockets and nod. No, honestly, it was just great. It was just great. And Olivia Rodrigo. Oh, yeah. You know, who sang that duet with with, with uh, Lily Allen. F U. It was dedicated to Supreme Court. Oh, fantastic. Which my son Sam was with me, and he was sort of thinking, oh, there's a lot of swearing here. <laughs> um, Did you encourage him to sing along? I, um, I was sort of, I was kind of had a conflicting view, conflicting sort of, although it was taken out of the BBC iPlayer version, interestingly. Is that right? Mm. And then we saw some of Paul McCartney. Uh, that felt like a historic moment. It was. I watched it on the telly. And, um, did you cry? I did cry by the end, actually. Yeah. And at, at first, I thought, I think he is 
such a crowd pleaser, but I think what he's doing, he's just had this big birthday at Glastonbury. He's treating himself to a set that he wants to play. And then by the end, you know, bringing on Dave Grohl and Bruce Springsteen and then still having enough yeah. songs in the back pocket to be able to ramp up the energy 25 songs in was was amazing. And he is 80. Do you know he stands on his head for 10 minutes every morning? You're not serious. Yeah, he's been doing it since the 60s. You're making that up. No, that's part of his thing. And he does something called eye yoga as well, eye movement yoga. God, do you think we should stand on our heads for 10 minutes? Well, it's doing him no harm, is it? He's very spry. And he's also vegan, isn't he? Is he vegan? Vegetarian. All right. So I'm sort of getting into, I kind of want to go to lots of concerts and music festivals, which is very odd because that's not what I do. Midlife crisis. What's that? Sorry. I know. I think that is true, actually. Now, but you must tell me. I mean, there's so much to talk about in this intro. You must tell me about Elton John and ABBA. Well, I took Gene to see Elton yeah. John. He loved it. So all of your fears were unfounded. He had the great time until Elton had played his two favourite songs, at which point, out of nowhere, he said, oh, Dad, I'm so tired. I can't stay any longer. I, I, we've got to go. I'm so tired. So we had to leave before my oh, favourite. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's good for you as you're a good dad, Jeff. You, I've always thought this. I also thought, well, avoid the crowds if we, uh, if we go now. And then ABBA... Yeah, go on. It is the single greatest leap forward of anything I've seen in my lifetime. What? Even without the fact that there's this illusion that the four members of ABBA are performing young in front of your yeah. eyes, which is difficult to wrap your brain around. The, the, the lighting and what they're doing with screens and the venue. I should go, shouldn't I? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's, it's like going from only ever having used the tin cannon string to the latest smartphone with none of the steps in between. Somebody said to me that it looks like they're actually there. Yeah. Do you have to really love ABBA to do it? I do quite like ABBA, but... No, I think I think if you quite like ABBA, it's fine. I even think if you actively dislike ABBA, the spectacle of it, it's just like grown adults grinning like children who've just seen a magic trick. It's amazing. So you've got to go, okay. honestly. I'd go again with you. I'd go in a heartbeat. Wow. So what else is on your gig list then? Sam Fender. I'd like to go and see Sam Fender. Glastonbury next year, or Glasto, as we call it. Uh, um, I mean, honestly, the other thing I should just say is, and of course, this isn't why I liked it. There are a large number of selfie opportunities. I did an Instagram post about our live show at King's Place on the 17th of July. And in the post, I said, you're not guaranteed a selfie with Ed, but I have never known him say no to a request. Never. Never. Um, There was a lot of selfies. You, you seem quite ebullient, and I think like it's the combination of being high on life, live music, and people asking for I selfies. I am, honestly. It did make me ebullient. Jeff, you know, why didn't I go to music festivals when I was the age when people go to music festivals? Well, I think that's a question you'd have to ask Gordon Brown, isn't it? <laughs> well, maybe that's true. Or my therapist. Or my <laughs> therapist. <laughs> what would Gordon Brown have said, do you think, if you'd said, Gordon, I'm not going to be in from Friday until maybe halfway through Monday, possibly Tuesday, because I'm going to Glastonbury. And my phone will be off. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have said, that's exactly the kind of work-life balance I encourage in my staff. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're hoping to get Gordon on the episodes, uh, on, on the podcast, so I think we should sort of, I think we should draw a quick, a quick veil over this bit. Um, now, shall we talk about what we're talking about? Now, we need to say that I was um, attending to parliamentary business, so I sadly, and I am very sad about it, missed the interviews on the really great subject we're talking about this week, but I want to hear it. So You missed the treat as well. Um, it's a really good one. We're talking about museums. 
which we've not covered in uh, in the 249 other episodes yeah. to date, which is astonishing because they're such important cultural institutions. And there's lots of debate about their role in society, whether and how they should be shaping social and political issues. And I'm going to be talking to Doug Gurr, who is director at the Natural History Museum. We also have Professor Laura van Bruckhoven, uh, who's going to be talking about her work to decolonise the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. And we have Chris Garrard, who co-leads a campaign to end oil sponsorship of museums. I recorded it all yesterday, and it's a really good conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful? Aside from the fact that we've chalked up 250 episodes... I got to say hello to Floella Benjamin this week. Oh, wow. Through the round window, the square window, or the oblong window. Where did you see her? I was on the Andrew Marr show talking about Paul McCartney. Okay, and that's great. she was the guest before me. You know how those things go, because it's live. I didn't get to talk to her, but I got to try and convey with my face, I'm so excited yeah. to see you. She's one of the first faces I ever remember seeing on television, yeah, yeah, yeah. if not the first. Anyway, getting to, to yeah. give good facial expression to Floella Benjamin was was the was my reason to be cheerful this week. How about you, aside from everything else you've told us? Well, I would like to thank you for sort of paying various people around London to say nice things to me in order to boost my self-esteem. Uh, and I'd like to pick out one person in particular, um, and I won't use their name because uh, they're a civil servant and I don't want to sort of potentially embarrass them and they didn't give me permission, but they um, they came up to me um, and she said she wrote me a poem after I lost the election as Labour leader. Oh, wow. Um, and I failed to reply. But I want to apologise. Well, if it if it makes this person feel any better, I don't, I don't remember getting a reply either <laughs> for for my poem. Twenty seven pages of blank verse in the iambic pentameter, written out longhand in cursive script in bodily fluids. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation about museums, I'm thrilled to say we have with us director of the Natural History Museum in London. Doug Gurr, hello. Hi, Jeff. Great to be with you today. It's great to have you. I'm a big fan, especially all the geodes and crystals. I spend a lot of time there with my six-year-old. It's funny, I think it occupies a special place in the heart of a lot of people, not just people who live in London. It's a national institution. You're a director now. What is your first memory of the Natural History Museum? <laughs> I actually grew up mostly in Kenya. And about once every year, if we were lucky, we got to come back to visit the UK. And I must have been, I don't know, four, maybe five. The only thing I wanted to do was come here and go to the museums. And, and like so many of us, I, I do think it was that moment when you walked into the Central Hall and you saw the extraordinary Diplodocus Dippy and you just thought, what an incredible place. We just announced a new chair a few months ago and it was fascinating. Virtually every letter started with, when I was six years old, dot, dot, dot. So, so <laughs> it's a memory that sits with you for life and it certainly has done for me. More of Dippy later. Something I've been thinking about in advance of this conversation is the flagship cultural policy of New Labour, which was making entry to museums and galleries free for everyone. What do you think that has done in terms of the place that museums occupy in our national life? I have become to be a real passionate believer in, in free access to these institutions for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, actually, even if you just look at the economic case, it makes sense. 
And we've done a bit of economic analysis and actually you're better off being free and having more visitors than charging a not. And so actually, even if that was the only thing you cared about, you should be free. And we are, and I'm thrilled we are. But I think it's a much more important point, which is museums throughout their history have always been extraordinary places to be at the center of debate and discussion of the hot topics of the day. That was true when, when this building here opened in 1881 and the hot topic was evolution versus creation. It was kind of fought out in these museums. And I think that's as true today as it's always been. Museums have this extraordinary ability to bring together people from all parts of society, all parts of the world, to talk about the issues that matter most today. And the more you can make them open, the more you make them accessible, the more you make them free, uh, the more you can actually increase access to people from all across society. And, and that's not just a London thing. It's not even just a UK thing. These are global institutions that we want to share globally. And part of that opening up, you tend to see that more typically middle class, typically white people are represented proportionately in museum visitors. How are we doing both at the Natural History Museum and more generally on opening up who is more likely to visit? I think we're making some progress, but nothing like enough. You know, if I look at our percentage of visitors from all diverse groups, we're sort of okay. We're making progress. We're not far off national sort of representation. But I think that sort of misses the point for me. And it certainly misses the point that, in a sense, if you were to level a criticism of museums, and particularly, I think, those extraordinary big national museums, many of whom have large locations in London, we've sort of, if you like, said to audiences, it's up to you to come to us. And I don't think that really works anymore. I think these are global collections with global audiences. You can't expect everybody to have the ability to come and make a physical visit. The onus is massively on us as museums to, to take the collections, the story, to share the wonder and to take it where the people are. And that means touring exhibitions nationally and globally. And of course, these days, it means the amazing opportunity that digital has to, to help us engage more frequently with audiences. It will never replace the magic of the visit, but I don't think any of us can afford to be complacent. I think we've got a lot more to do, and I think it's on us to do that. I'm very interested in the stuff you're doing around neurodiversity, particularly with children. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, we have a great program called Dornosaurs. You'll forgive the pun. It's particularly targeted at neurodiverse groups and particularly neurodiverse children. These are people who find it very hard to be in a crowded space. We run special programs out of hours when it can be quiet in safe spaces with the opportunity to engage with explainers. It's a fantastic program. And it's just one of, I think, many of examples where you've got to go out into a group and just say, do we understand why you weren't coming? And how do we create the environment in which you can actually come and have the same experience we all want to have? Different audiences will have interest in different stories. And I think you are an individual. You will engage with that collection and that museum in your own particular way. How do we make it easier for you to, to follow and engage with the stories that really excite you? We know that an object, a specimen, becomes so much more powerful when you start telling stories about it. If we do that well, that's how you start to get people inspired. And that's how, for us, that's about how do you engage people in the natural world, planet Earth? How do you inspire them to care about it? And when you think about those stories and whose story you're telling and how you're telling it, you don't have to go very far along with that process before you need to think about whether a story is becoming politicised. Attitudes and the way that we think about stories can change from one decade to the next, and certainly across the length of time, something like the Natural History Museum has been there. Is, is that a tricky thing to navigate? I think the answer is yes, but it should be. And it's back to that point where museums have always been places where you want to talk about difficult issues. You want to talk about controversial points. We want to engage on that. 
And actually, I think part of the extraordinary privilege we have as museums is we are actually quite trusted voices. That brings with it both a sense of opportunity and a sense of responsibility. The responsibility is you have to treat that trust as something very precious. It's hard-earned and it's easily lost. So whenever we approach a controversial issue, we have to do it in such a way that preserves that trust. We are absolutely a place where we can bring together those diverse voices, where you can convene possibly very different worlds. You know, we can bring together the world of youth activism and large corporates and government and charities. With that trust comes a massive opportunity to be almost the only place where you can imagine putting a group of people in a room together to have the debate, which would be almost unimaginable anywhere else. I think the move that the museum made a couple of years ago to say, well, you know, if your subject matter is life and that life is under threat, just observing it is not enough. You know, if you want the sporting analogy, we have to get off the sidelines and get onto the pitch. So that was our decision to say, we want to do something about it. So is it challenging? Of course, and it should be. And we need to run towards that, not run away from it. And does that extend to where you take money for corporate sponsorship from? Because there have been some, certainly some difficult conversations and legitimate objections to that in some of your peers or the other institutions. It's an issue we all have to be incredibly thoughtful about. You know, for ourselves, I can't speak for other institutions, but we have an independent ethics committee that reviews any potential sponsorship or any particular engagement. So the first and most important thing is you have to engage. You know, our subject matter here at the museum is planet Earth and life on planet Earth. That's a big subject. And there's a problem, which is that that life is demonstrably under threat. And, and it's one of the things that prompted us as a museum to shift, if you like, from, from almost being passive to being much more active. But we can only do that if we engage not just with citizens, which of course we will do, and people. We also have to engage with governments and we have to engage with corporates because they have an impact. But you need to be incredibly careful that we can't compromise that trust, that independence. I can tell you, as I say, there have been occasions when, based on the, the view of our ethics committee, we have, we've said no. Of course, we all want the money. Of course, you need that to be able to continue to do what you do, but you have to be very clear about what your framework is. Now, you mentioned Dippy. I know that he is, I think, just back from a four-year tour of the UK. Talk to us about how different the picture is for museums outside of London and the role of an institution like the Natural History Museum in, in supporting them. Dippy was, was inspired by that concept of saying, let's take one of our most iconic specimens, Britain's favourite dinosaur, and we engaged with a whole series, eight different venues, partners across all four nations of the UK, to send Dippy on tour through that. And I have to say, Jeff, it was amazing. I mean, Dippy visited those eight venues, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, England, went to Rochdale, Norwich, Glasgow, Cardiff, went all over the place. In every single venue, Dippy smashed visitor records. I think over 2.2 million people saw Dippy on that tour. And furthermore, we actually did an economic impact report. We know that Dippy generated over £36 million of economic value add to those, to those places. Wow. Just to hear young kids from, you know, Rochdale's a good example. That's not an affluent community. And actually just to have somebody there saying, we never thought we'd get something like this in Rochdale. And, and at one level, that's, you think, wow, that's great. Another level, you slightly think, shame on us. You know, it's a national collection. You have as much right wherever you live as anyone does and for any citizen of the UK and actually for any global citizen. So I think that's why we sent Dippy out on tour. We actually announced a couple of months ago that um, we're now looking for partner venues from anywhere around the UK, any of the four nations who would like to take Dippy on a long-term loan. Don't send that animatronic T-Rex out on tour. I think it could, <laughs> could create Godzilla-like panic around the country. More generally, when you look at the 
space up museums occupy in our society and the challenges of COVID and funding cuts, difficult conversations that you've alluded to, which you've said are actually conversations that belong in museums, but certainly challenging conversations within that world around provenance and colonialism and so on. What gives you cause for optimism when you look at the sector, like where it's going, what the future looks like? Yeah. So what really gives me confidence is, you know, I meet many of my fellow museum directors and I have to say both, both here in the UK and globally, they are an inspiring group of individuals. The passion, the commitment, the level of expertise, the deep understanding of these issues you've talked about gives me a huge amount of confidence. So actually, I think we're blessed in the UK with having a sector which we are genuinely world leading at. And we're world leading because we've got some of the best people in the world. And therefore, despite all of the challenges, and I don't remotely underestimate them, and I'm sure many of my peer directors will be sitting here saying, for goodness sake, Doug, it's much tougher than you're making it out. Actually, what gives me confidence is I believe in the quality of the people we have in this sector. Have you ever slept in the Natural History Museum? (laughs) Absolutely. And we run programs. If anybody's never done it, Dinosaurs is a fantastic program. We occasionally get feedback that our younger kids absolutely love it. Some of our more uh, mature, should we say, visitors, perhaps some of the parents find the floor a bit hard. But you know what? Why wouldn't you want to come and spend a night in the museum? (laughs) Doug, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Jeff, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. With me now is Professor Laura van Bruckhoven, who is Director of the Pitt Rivers Museum and Professor of Museum Studies, Ethics and Material Culture at the University of Oxford. Hello, Laura. Hi, good to be here. Thank you for taking the time. You're very welcome. Can I start by talking to you with your... Pitt Rivers hat on. Now, now for background, the museum is responsible for the archaeological and anthropological collections of Oxford University. And in recent times, you've given a lot of thought to the fact that artefacts are often collected under colonialism. Can you 
start by talking to us about the conventional thinking on this and how you've decided to challenge that. The Pitt-Evers Museum's collections are about 750,000 objects. And many of those objects were taken as part of the colonial project, you could say, to go to places and take those things that were valuable to people. And I think for a very long time, what was seen is that we had accumulated these things because we were entitled to, because we were the ones who had studied them in the Western universities in particular, and therefore we knew best what to do with these kind of objects. And we would teach about them. We actually, you know, in the times of the British Empire, colonial officers were taught what to do when they were going to different places in the world. And they were taught what they would take, what were the things they needed to look for, what were the resources they were looking for. And just to be be clear on that, so that is an act of the, the state of empire. This was a, a facet of the British government. Yeah, this was really part of the government, people who were sent there to administer the colonial administration. Colonialism is about power, right? Who has power? And it's about overturning the local power structures to implement the power structures that come from the centre, which at that time was Great Britain. They would then also be very much engaged with extracting things and especially resources, materials that would then be brought to the centre to enrich us here. And so the assumption was also that we were bringing civilization. At that time, one of the things that within anthropology and archaeology, it was assumed there was a sort of social evolution where society evolved from being savages to barbarous to civilized. And civilization was, you know, what, what we were doing. It kind of suits that to have this idea that this stuff was given over freely in in return for the knowledge of how to build a railway. Exactly, for example. And then not thinking about how railways were really built to make sure that we could extract lots of things or to transport our military forces more easily. We would be building road systems. So I'm from Belgium. I was um, educated within sort of in the Congo. What we were doing was civilizing people. And we were really doing that from the goodness of our heart. Instead of actually thinking, and this was in the 80s, right? That's when I was educated. So that's how we were all, I think, our minds in the way that we were thinking about these things. We can see in the way that we describe the objects, it's in the way that we, in our databases, the way that we um, talk about them, the way that we often only talk about the colonial person who brought the objects to the museum. But actually, the real essence of the information that we are looking for now is about how were they used? What did they mean? Who was the maker of them? And in our case of the Pit Rivers Museum, of those 750,000 objects, we only know that in about 5% of the cases, even who the maker was. Because that was so irrelevant to what the colonial sort of project was wanting to do. It was to just take these things and study them with our lenses. So how are you challenging that at Pit Rivers then? There's a whole range of things that we're doing, but we're really sort of looking at, okay, what if we would start from the assumption that there is not one universal way of being and not only one place where knowledge is made? There are many, many cultures in the world, but they coexist with their own ways of seeing, their own worldviews. But to actually unlock those, we need to work with communities. So we're doing a huge amount of work with communities, indigenous peoples from across the globe. We work with the Evenki from Siberia, with the Maasai in Tanzania and Kenya, uh, with Haida communities in Canada. There's a whole range of communities that we're working with, also acknowledging that some of the objects that we have might need to return or might need to be cared for differently. We're building relationships and having relationships that are equitable. So that means 
that at times it means that objects might need to be returned, might need to go back. And in this case for the Maasai, what they felt is needed is a ceremony called Elata Inkiro, which is a Maasai ceremony that they do when someone is murdered in Maasai communities. It means that the two different clans that are involved, there's a sort of payment of cows that is made to the family um, who was wronged and that actually re-establishes the relationship so they can intermarry again. So it really is sort of reconciliation process. For the um, Haida, it's been about access. They really want access to collections and there might be that there are still objects that need to be returned. For the Edo Kingdom, where in 1897, lots of objects were taken by military violence and it's a punitive campaign, um, that's that these objects need to be returned. So they need to go into a process of, re- of repatriation. So every community wants something different and needs something different. And it's about us not saying there's one way of going about this. There's one recipe and you all need to do what we're saying, but actually saying, okay, let's see how we accommodate this. How do we make this happen? And in those conversations with those communities, as as we grapple with our own guilt and culpability over some of these artefacts, how common is it to find discomfort over what happened or, or even anger? Often, partly it's anger when for many, many years people have been asking for access or have been asking for things to be returned and there is no answer. The reaction of institutions has been so slow that actually people have become really agitated. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, someone shuts the door in your face and don't want to talk to you anymore. That, that is sort of where people start to bang on the door. People start talking about decolonization as if it's this thing from now. It's a thing that started you know, hundreds of years ago for many indigenous communities. There's lots of indigenous authors asking for change. And, it takes a long time before museums finally started to listen. And these reactions of communities will often have been against the constancy of just finding the doors closed. I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling shame and guilt over what has happened. And we should feel some shame and guilt. But it cannot stop us from actually then being able to engage with what is actually needed to do the work around cultural repair. If I apply an extreme logic to this, you possibly get to a point where, un- unless an object was bequeathed by its original owner or maybe even creator, that there could be sort of rabbit holes you could go down around legitimacy. Is is there an internal test, like a rule of thumb test, that you can apply that would be useful for people to know about? Yeah, so I think it's really quite organic at the moment, and iterative, let's say, at the moment, how we work with communities. Around repatriation, for example, we have procedures that we've established where, you know, who can come with a claim? Because there are some dangers around claims, right? So if we only work with national governments, for example, the real, the real problem is there that lots of nation states like you know, China uh, oppresses Tibet, right? So if China comes for Tibetan heritage and, and asks for all of that to be returned, that is a real problem for the Tibetan community. That might not be what they want. So I think those are the sort of things that we really need to be quite nuanced and careful, make sure that we're not, you know, um, doing more harm by going into some of those processes. So it is, you know, it's, it's a really complicated, difficult, um, at times also very time consuming process. Every case is a case by case decision. It sometimes is really about almost like, you know, sort of detective work that you need to start looking into you know, all the archives. And that's where I think what is really positive and, and I'm really pleased that we're working together quite a lot now with lots of different museums. 
we have a vision of a utopia on this podcast called the Jeffocracy. And if we were to make you, I don't know, if we're minister for museums in this coming utopia, what would be your first policy? Day one, what is the thing that government could do to support and steer museums in the kind of areas we've been talking about? And I have cash on money also, is that right? Yeah, the levers of power and the checkbook are yours. You got all the money. Okay, good. Yeah, so because that's where uh, we, we see a huge difference between the UK and, for example, some other uh, nation states like Germany, where money is really being allocated to this, to this repair work. So one, you would want to steer away from all the fearfulness and actually be really courageous. Courageous in being vulnerable, saying, yes, there's an issue here, and being open to addressing that issue without wanting to keep, without thinking that we are the only ones who can, that, that you know, preservation care is still the way that care is best thought of. The other thing that I'd want to do is to make sure that we are bringing in a lot more Indigenous curation, curation by people who've not been educated to be a curator, establishing um, these kind of procedures for across the board. So that, you know, for example, at the moment, the Australian Aboriginal communities will need to go one institution, the other institution, the other institution, cap in hand, asking for their ancestral remains back. That is awful. It's super colonial. So can we have one procedure, all of us together? And actually, when they come, we'll all look into our databases. We'll all sort of pull together the resources and say, these are the materials in the UK. This is the way they can be returned. So I think it's really, on the one hand, you know, sort of openness acknowledging that there is an issue here that we need to tackle, but there's no simple solution. So it's going to take time and it's going to take people, but it's also going to take listening and um, having enough systems and procedures and processes in place that we can do this without being this hyper-colonial approach where we're making people jump through all the hoops and still say no. Well, it's going to be a busy day one for you, Laura. Yes, that's true. Laura van Brookhoven, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Jeff. An aspect of this that we haven't uh, really touched on yet is what happens when shortfalls in government funding lead to museums forging commercial partnerships. And to talk about that and round off the conversation, we have Dr. Chris Garrard, who is co-director of Culture Unstained. Hello, Chris. Hiya. Good to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. So so tell us, what, what is Culture Unstained and what's your involvement in it? So Culture Unstained is a campaigns and research organisation with the aim of ending fossil fuel sponsorship and funding of our arts and culture institutions. But there were many other groups that are part of this larger movement that have been campaigning to get oil companies out of our museums and cultural spaces for a long time before that. We do what you might think of as more traditional campaigning, working with actors, artists, doing research about what lies behind these sponsorship deals. But then there are these other groups like Liberate Tate or BP or Not BP who use creative tactics to go and protest in these spaces as well. What's the um, reaction like when you talk to artists and actors? Because, of course, they, they will have their own values. They'll also be conscious of how the public perceives them. But I guess there's an element of not wanting to bite the hand that feeds you as well. I think we've seen a real shift, particularly in recent years, around this issue of, for example, a BP or a Shell sponsoring a major culture institution, because the understanding of the role of the fossil fuel industry in in driving the climate crisis is, is much better understood. But part of what we've done is to shine a spotlight on the kind of reality behind these sponsorship deals. 
So when we're talking about drawing an ethical red line and saying, look, because of the role of these companies in in fueling the climate crisis, we need to step away from them, much in the way that we shifted away from tobacco sponsorship in the past. This isn't what is going to undermine our museum's ability to put on amazing exhibitions and programs. What's required is a, a bit of planning, a bit of rethinking about who else can we go to for that funding? What are the new models that allow our museums and cultural institutions to demonstrate ethical leadership? The Museums Association, which is the kind of membership body for museums in the UK, they've got a code of ethics. And within it, it says that museums need to exercise due diligence. So basically do do some research on who it is you're planning to take funding from. And the purpose of doing that is to understand whether your values and mission are aligned with the person you're proposing taking sponsorship from. Now, if you are somewhere like the British Museum, for example, and you're going to put on an exhibition about Indigenous culture from Australia, which is something they did, then maybe I'd suggest that having the logo of a company like BP that is fueling impacts on these communities and Indigenous peoples in Australia for a long time have resisted the kind of extractive industries. Those two things don't align. There's a clear cognitive dissonance there. And when we've kind of pushed the British Museum to say, have you actually grappled with what BP is doing and the ways in which their business is at odds with the Paris Climate Agreement? We always get a really vague response back and there needs to be accountability and transparency, particularly in the case of these national museums that are being taxpayer funded as well. We're also at a point where many museums and cultural institutions have declared a climate emergency as well. There's a general understanding that these partnerships, these sponsorship deals lend a kind of social legitimacy to these companies. And can be part of greenwashing. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the sponsorship and the greenwashing, they're part of this strategy of reputation management. So the cultural sponsorship, it's loose change to a company that's making billions in profits. And what they're doing is trying to model themselves as a kind of responsible corporate citizen when nothing could be further from the truth. We actually started doing some mapping of what BP is sponsoring. This was at a time when they were very involved in Russia. They were sponsoring the Marinsky Ballet and the State Hermitage Museum. And then they would sponsor the tour to come to the Royal Opera House, where they would invite government ministers to go to the Royal Opera House. So all of these dots join up. So far from these museums or cultural institutions being neutral spaces... They are actively playing a part in a corporate strategy here, which is to get more fossil fuels out of the ground. And what have been the great victories for Culture Unstained to date? So before us, there was Liberate Tate, who brought about the end of BP's sponsorship of Tate, and that was a huge shift. The bigger successes that have come in the recent years where we've kind of played a role alongside others was the National Portrait Gallery earlier this year announced that the BP Portrait Award, which has been sponsored by BP for 30 years, um, that that's no longer going to be the case. Wow. The Royal Shakespeare Company, when it signed up to a five-year sponsorship deal with BP, it actually ended that sponsorship early. And that was really driven by young people, members of the youth climate movement speaking out against that sponsorship deal as well. So the climate crisis seems very clear, but I imagine if you are running an institution like a museum, there's pressure not to appear politicised and to assume some kind of neutrality. Is that something you knock up against? Yeah, so a lot of people in the museum sector 
acknowledge that museums actually aren't neutral spaces. And often the, the pushback is, well, we, we don't take a position on who we take money from. It's not for us to make a political judgment or an ethical judgment. We're neutral. But the very fact of claiming to be neutral and saying, well, we're going to take the money of this fossil fuel company and turn a blind eye to what they're doing, that is a position that is being partisan. And I think I maybe came into this conversation thinking that the problem is just involving uh, private or corporate sponsorship in the first place and these institutions not being just funded by government. But it, it, it sounds like perhaps there's a wider range of thinking on that. I guess not least because not all of the world's great museums are originated by the state. They can be originated by philanthropists or elsewhere. So is there an easy fix or is it, as you describe, institutions really scrutinising their own values on a one-by-one -one basis? I would say it's a combination of things. So we did an investigation earlier this year where we revealed the details of the chairman's advisory group at the British Museum. And this is basically a group of representatives of major corporates. And we know that includes BP, but a lot of banks invested in fossil fuels, uh, an aerospace um, and defence firm. And they have this kind of direct line to the chair of the British Museum. They discuss issues such as restitution or how the museum might engage with the government. And so in that case, there's a really concerning example of uh, the kind of private sector or, or these particular kinds of corporations having a great deal of influence in these spaces. And actually, we're not extending the same level of influence or accountability to the people whose cultures and communities are represented in the museum uh, in a lot of cases as well. So it's about really asking, well, what is the museum for? What is its role in society? And who are the people who should be taking the decisions about its strategic direction? And that's not to say, okay, we need to get rid of all corporate sponsorship, but we need to have a funding model and governance models that allow the people with the experience, the skills, the expertise to do the amazing work that is happening in many of our museums. That's so interesting. So you're saying when, when you pay for a sponsorship, you're not necessarily just paying for the real estate on the front of the museum or on the advertising materials or, or brochures or, or whatever to brand your corporation or yourself however way you want. You're buying access. Yeah, so corporate sponsorship and the kind of cultural sponsorship that a BP or a Shell or Equinor is involved in is a transaction. And what was so problematic about that Indigenous Australia exhibition at the British Museum is it was called the BP Exhibition. You had objects that communities wanted returned to Australia that were being put on display next to a BP logo as well. So there were these kind of many layers of essentially a colonial legacy playing out the kind of theft of resources, the taking of resources by a, a major extractive company, um, and then the kind of taking of objects and then the refusal to return them. We have to sort of think about it in this joined up way um, that, that sometimes these sponsorship deals are intersecting with, with other issues as well. How do we feel optimistic on this issue? When you think about how far you've come since, since you started working in this area and what the future looks like, how do you stay optimistic? What do you see? What excites me is the kind of 
diverse coalition of groups that have come together around this issue. And not just around the concept of climate action, but around the concept of climate justice. So we've seen these movements of people involving archaeologists, youth climate strikers, scientists, artists, educators, so on, the list goes on and on. But going to somewhere like the British Museum and using that as a platform to centre the voices of those communities who are being impacted by climate change and to really use the museum as a space for dialogue, for discussion, for conversation, for dissent, and to bring those voices into the conversation that too often are just absent from the conversation about climate change or are overlooked. That's what really excites me, is we need to really focus on promoting climate justice and, and not just climate action. And that's what this movement is really striving to do. Is there a way people can become involved in Culture Unstained or the organisations you work alongside? Yeah, there are so many ways. There are various Petitions, open letters, if you go to these cultural spaces and you want them to shift their approach, then write to them, email to them, engage with them on social media. The groups that I mentioned earlier, like BP or Not BP or Liberate Tate, do these amazing kind of creative protests that really allow us to come together and celebrate how much we really value these cultural spaces, but also why we care about them, why we want them to change and show leadership on this issue. Dr. Chris Garrard, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode, uh, please do get in touch with us or you've got ideas for future episodes. We'd really, really love to hear from people. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. This one comes from Kira Lambert and it's about our women in prison brackets and probation she says episode hi both thank you for this week's podcast i'm a support worker for women who are on probation either prison release or community orders and i support them with everything from emotional well-being to benefits to accommodation it's a struggle as a support worker to find services landlords and employers with an open mind willing to work with women on probation your podcast was of course heavily focused on actual prisons the women in there but i honestly believe the conversation needs extended to those on probation even if they were never in custody i'm only 22 and I'm the only support many of these women have, and I spend hours and hours trying to support them and can end my days in tears of pure frustration for them. I listened in tears as my work was being recognised for the importance it has and the lack of funding it receives. The conversation on treatment of these women extends far beyond just the cells, as the discrimination extends throughout their time on probation and beyond. Thank you, and I hope you extend this conversation with workers like me in the future. Kindest regards, Kira. What a brilliant email, Jeff. Yeah, and what a brilliant idea as well. That's definitely something we should revisit. And also, I mean, I, I often think this about some of the people I meet. Um, it's sort of true of the people I meet on trains, for example, who often are incredibly young and doing really, really responsible and important jobs. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you imagine, imagine you or me at the age of 22 doing this job. Oh, God, yeah. This comes from Freddie Waite, also on that episode. It says, A really important factor regarding the background of women in prison is the link with acquired brain injuries. Research from the Disabilities Trust found 64% of women report a history indicative of brain injury, the majority of which is as a result of domestic violence. 
brain injuries can drastically change our behaviour and many will go unnoticed if sustained over a period of time. I feel this gets completely overlooked when talking about women in prison, domestic violence, even the justice system in general, a high proportion of men in prison similarly show signs of brain injuries. The Disabilities Trust have done some great research if you want to find out more or invite someone onto the show. Um, Well, thank you for that, Freddie. And something we talk about a lot is we're 250 episodes in now and just because we covered something once doesn't mean it's it's ticked off we can always go back to these things so if you listen to this and you have thoughts on something that you'd like us to revisit from a different angle or something that's moved on since we last talked about on the podcast we'd we'd love to hear from you so get in touch through the website and this uh, finally comes from Susanna Garten. Dear Jeff and Ed, I have an idea for an episode and suggestion for a guest. I've been listening to the podcast since the very first episode and I've never missed one. Fantastic. Congratulations on 250 episodes, Susanna. Exactly. I listen every Monday wherever I am while walking my dog, running, shopping and once trekking in the Himalayas. Wow. Do you think that is the highest altitude? Well, maybe people will listen to it on a plane, but do you think it's uh, the, the highest altitude anybody's ever listened to the podcast whilst on terra firma? Well, let's see. Yeah. If anyone can beat that, let us know. Um, or anyone who's done it sort of underwater. Oh, yeah. Uh, lowest or highest point. It gives me my reliable weekly dose of optimism. My suggestion is for an episode on character education in schools. Character education is about helping young people grasp what is ethically important and equipping them with the intellectual and moral tools or virtues to make wise choices. In society where we have a crisis of character in politics, business, society, character education plays an essential role in ensuring young people grow up with a sense of agency and optimism and the virtues needed to make ethical, compassionate and courageous choices. Thanks to both of you and the whole team for all that you do every week. You've kept me going for the last six years, despite all the bad news in the world. Best wishes, Susanna from Cheshire, but currently rescuing street dogs in India. Wow. What a great bunch of emails. Absolutely. I mean, very befitting of the 250th. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, it's time for us to go now, as Florella Benjamin, I think, might have said on uh, Play School. Um, we should let our listeners into the magic, so-called, um, uh, which is that we're recording this on Thursday and I had a bit of a spill on my bike. Uh, you almost didn't make it to 250 episodes. Well, I don't think that's quite true, but I I was um, cycling across Parliament Hill, legitimately, I hasten to add, and uh, a, a little dog came out and sort of, Ask for a selfie? No, and and uh, <laughs> and and I nearly sort of I did I managed to swerve. Well, I managed to break and then swerve to avoid the dog. But I came and I so good news the dog wasn't harmed. Uh, bad news I sort of fell off my bike and my rather heavy electric bike fell on top of me and I am basically fine. I've got slightly bruised Heads. leg, bruised leg and bruised ego. Um, but oh. uh, but I just want to say that there was so, people were so nice. The the la- I don't know the name of the lady, but the lady who whose dog it was, was absolutely mortified. And I just want to say, look, it's just these things happen. And so if she listens or her, uh, it was a cockapoo that she was, you know, so if anyone knows her, please tell her it's okay. And then a nice lady came and got me some ice. 
you told me about this before we started recording. People were so attentive, but everybody rallied around yeah, you. Yeah, they did. There I mean, was... that must be good for your self-esteem. Four or five people, a nice lady helped me walk my bike back home. Somebody put a blanket over, yeah. makeshift blanket over yeah, you. Somebody all... put you in the recovery yeah, position. It was, it was really sort of... Um... Anyone ask you for a selfie during no, all of No, this? I was hoping they might, but they didn't. Uh... <laughs> One of my early thoughts, having fallen over, was Jeff is going to say this is shows how sort of maladroit I am. Um, I really, I really love that um, in in a situation where maybe your whole life would be flashing in front of your Jeff, eyes. What's Jeff going to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't actually think it was my maladroitness on this occasion. Would you let Chutney run out like that in the park? Well, that's the great thing about Chutney is <laughs> being an invisible dog. Uh, he doesn't quite have those problems. So let's thank our guests. Uh, yes. Thank you to Doug, uh, Professor Laura von Brookhoven and Dr. Chris Garrard. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. Our items were made by James Deacon and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been dodging a cockapoo. He's been dancing to Waterloo. Again? And these have been 250 Reasons to be Cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.